0: Good afternoon. Just gonna get started here. So good afternoon. Today that we are now coming to the end of the book of Leviticus. There are two weeks left, in fact, in the in the land of Israel, Narrates Rel, they're already Doing the last Torah reading of the Book of Leviticus, Bihu Kosai, we are a Parsha behind because we had Pesach, the last day of Pesach was on Shabbos, and we catch up only at the end of the book of Numbers. So for us it's the Torah reading of Bahar, and the land of Israel it's the Torah reading of Bihu Kosai. So today we'll be talking about Parsha's Bahar, the second to the last Torah reading in the Book of Leviticus. A story told about this wealthy man's son comes to him and says, Hey, dad, how did you make all your money? He says, how did I make all my money? When I was 14 years old, I dropped out of school. And I went to work collecting tomatoes. I got a few tomatoes at the end of the day. And I was able to sell them. I made a few dollars. After I got a few, then I saw that I was getting more and more tomatoes every single day. I opened up a stand. And I sold tomatoes by the stand, and every single day I would come home with a little more money, and then I would get a bigger stand. And then one day I had an uncle in America that died, left me an inheritance, and I made millions of dollars. (laughs) So when we talk about um, protecting our future, you speak to any different type of financial advisors of all kinds and all sorts and all shapes, And everybody is there to tell you what to do to be able to protect your financial future, how you should put away money, if you should put it in stocks and mutual funds, investments, commodities, bitcoin, you name it, you got a guy that's telling you that this is the future, or the gold advertisements that you hear, whatever it may be, everybody has got an idea how to protect your future, your financial future. Then you talk about your safety net, your um, rainy day fund, and then there's also what about your actual physical future? We know today that we're in crazy times and looking at just one person just to open up the events of what's going on around. And who knows what you can do to be able to protect yourself and probably the best thing is maybe to stay home and never go anywhere if that's the way to live. We tried that too. But we tried that also and we see how much that helped. And people go crazy in other ways. So we see when we talk about what does it take for a person to be able to protect themselves in their financial future? So today, any financial advisor that would tell you would look at it and say, look at the GDP, the gross domestic growth of whatever it may be or the production of any country has, and you see how the country's economy is going, and if they have a lot of inflation, and all the different metrics that people use, and all the great economics, and the more language they use that you don't know, the more convinced you think that the guy knows what he's talking about, and that's eventually how you're able to make a decision to be able to continue and put away in your 401k, IRA, and all the other different types of numbers and forms that exist to be able to protect your financial future. But what is it? What is the Jewish method of protecting our financial future. What is the way that the Torah would tell us to be able to, uh, to protect our financial future? And in this week's Torah reading, the Torah tells us, and he said it last week's Torah reading, and it says it again in this week's Torah reading in different shapes and forms, and it says it throughout the Torah, six days a week, you're going to work, you're going to do everything you have to do, and then, God will bless you in everything you do. So clearly we see that what is the way that a person is going to be able to have a financial future is if you work six days a week and you protect yourself on the seventh day. An interesting thing, if you notice the word blessed in Hebrew means Baruch, Baruch. is made up of three letters. beis, Reish, Chaf. If you take all of those letters, numeric value, they're all double. Bayes is two, which is double one. Reish is 200, which is double 100. Chaf is 20, which is double 10. What is a true blessing? That when you take something, it automatically, you get double from it. A blessing that you invest in something, you only get half, you don't even make it back. What you invested. is it, it's not considered a blessing. A blessing is that you put in one, you get two. You put in two, you get four. And this is what the Torah tells us. Beinachachah, God will bless you in everything you do, that in everything you'll do, you'll see a double blessing. But if we look a little further, what is it that the Torah tells us in this week's Torah reading? What is the blessing that the prophets have told us that is going to be in the time of the coming of Moshiach? What are the signs of the prophecy that the Jewish people made it, that the coming of Moshiach, is that when the land produces enough, but not only enough, but gives quality. You can, you can plant a vegetable, you get one zucchini, one cucumber, one thing. But when your produce is able to be enormous, that you can put in seedlings, and you see in a great, a vast amount of growth from it, then all of a sudden you can see that this is an actual blessing. Like we see by Yitzchak, that it says that Yitzchak planted and he saw that much 100% growth. That's when it was considered a blessing. The prophets tell us that one of the signs of the coming of Moshiach is that when the land of Israel would produce more than expected. And we see today, Baruch Hashem, that the greatest blessing to the land of Israel today has become one of the greatest exporters that the land itself is producing more than ever imaginable. We're talking about a parcel of land that was desolate. And if you look in the last few hundred years, never before has Israel, the land of Eretz Yisrael today, produced that much, I'm talking about in agriculture, to be able to give, in fact, years ago, there was this whole big thing, how the world is gonna to come to an absolute state of poverty, there's not gonna be food for everybody, because the way, before the Industrial Revolution, before the imagined things doing in bulk, and in such type, there was not gonna be enough. If every person's gonna even have a vegetable patch, it's not gonna be enough, the amount of people that there were gonna to be towards the amount of land that there is. All of a sudden, the Industrial Revolution came, and we were able to start making things grow in large quantities, as well. The same ideas, if you look in the land of Eretz Israel, in the land of Eretz Israel until 70, 80 years ago, what was there? It was a desolate land. Most of the land was unused, not producing anything. One of the things that actually going back to the time of Moses Mount the Fury, when he settled Jews. And the first issue in the settlement of the land of Israel was that they should become farmers and deal with the land. But even then, what did they know until, in fact, they went bankrupt and that they needed people to bail them out because what did these old Jews from Poland do? They knew how to make shoes. They knew how to make other things. But what did they know? Where did they have fields, even to plant? All of a sudden, they came to the land of Israel. They had to plant. But if we look today, Israel today is one of the top 20 countries. I think they even surpassed Germany in export of their produce. That's how much there is. You go today in, in, in Costco, you can get, um, uh, what's it called, carrots that are from Israel, jaffa oranges, which is very popular, cherry tomatoes was made in Israel, with the concept was made in Israel, peppers, long-life peppers, long-shelf-life peppers was made, the concepts were all made in Israel. In fact, if you look at an interesting thing in the, in the Amidah that we say in the Sh'moneh in the blessings, you'll notice that after the blessing of Birchas Hashanim that we're asking God to bless the produce, the next blessing is to is, uh, the Shefer, that God should gather the Jewish people together. One second, you still didn't finish asking about all your personal blessings already, going to communal blessings, asking God to bring us Mashiach, And this is because the Talmud tells us, and it says that one of the things that one will see in the time of the coming of Mashiach, they will see the blessing in the produce, that will tell you that it's a sign of the coming of Mashiach. And over here we see as well, as we mentioned, that Israel, thank God, is today blessed with one of those blessings as we see as we're coming to the time closer to the coming of Moshiach. But the, over here we take a step further and we see one of the first mitzvahs that are mentioned in this week's Reading. And if we see that the blessing is in the produce, the blessing is in the quantity and the quality of the produce that's coming out of the land, why then would the Torah tell you to take an entire year and stop working, the sabbatical year? This year happens to be the sabbatical year. In Israel, this is the Shemitah year. That what does it mean the sabbatical year? That you're not allowed to work with the land as we'll soon see the details of the word in the Torah. Take for a moment, if you're in any industry, you're a doctor you're a computer technician, you're a writer, you're a teacher. Imagine for a tire year, you can't touch a computer, you can't put on a stethoscope, you can't go into the office. What would that mean to your business? Boom, kaput, there's no business. Why would the Torah, who wants you to be productive, who wants you to succeed, the Torah who wants the land of Israel to be successful, because as we know, that is a sign of the coming of Moshiach, that the land is producing more and more and more, all of a sudden the Torah tells you, one year, every seventh year, stop. As we see in the Torah in this week's Torah reading. The Torah reading begins. Ki when you will come into the land. give you. and the land is going to rest a Shabbos. Six days, six years you'll plant. Seven, six years you'll trim your vines, and you'll gather the wheat. Comes the seventh year, nothing. It becomes a sabbatical for the land. In other places, the Torah tells us even more. The Torah tells us, you will leave the field, you will not touch it, the animals will be able to have it. And as the Torah tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, after seven years, the seventh year will be a Shemitah. Meaning, any person who has a loan against another person, he cannot collect it, and so on. So here we see Shemitah means in three different aspects. But first and foremost, Shemitah means total separation from the field. Having nothing to do with your property. And that is addressed in three different methods. Number one, you cannot work with your ground, you cannot plow it, you can't sow, you can't prune it, you can't do anything to it. Number two, you have to be able to allow your field to be open. Any person that wants can come into the field and take the fruit. You have no ownership on the fruit. If the person next door, the person across the street, your biggest enemy, the most poor person, it doesn't make a difference. Anybody that wants can come into the field and collect the fruit. Number three is also you have to forgive on any loans. If you own, a, if you, somebody owes you money, it comes to the Shemitah year, all loans are canceled. What does this happen? How does this work out? So the Torah over here comes along and guarantees and says, Ah, you're going to be concerned. How am I going to make it? How am I going to survive if I'm not working with my field? Therefore, the Torah comes along and says, Don't worry about it. In the sixth year, you will make enough, to produce for three years. It will give you for the sixth year, for the seventh year, for the eighth year, because the sixth year you need for that year that you're producing. The seventh year you need because since you haven't done anything for that year. Then you need for the eighth year because you're only planting again. So the only time you're really gonna get your produce back or be able to be back on your feet is gonna be for the ninth year. So therefore the Torah tells you that those three years is gonna be a blessing of God. Now you may say, wow, wonderful blessing. In fact, the Medrash says, the medrash, the commentators explain and say a person who can withstand this challenge is called a gibor koach, a person of great strength. Because as the medrash goes on to explain, any other mitzvah God tells you to do, how long does it take? What's the longest amount of time it takes? What's the greatest investment in any mitzvah? A moment to put on tefillin, to give charity. A day, Shabbat you take off work, okay? But it's one day. A holiday, six days, seven days. What's the big deal. The in the grand scheme of things. How much is the loss? Not much. Over here all of a sudden the Torah comes along and says, you're a farmer. You make all your money from farming the land. Not only do you make your money from farming the land, the land needs you to work on it. Any land that stays uh, dormant, dormant, it becomes dry, it becomes hard. And all of a sudden you have to work more difficult with it. And the Torah says, no, you're not going to touch it. You're not going to make any money. Somebody owes you money, you're not going to collect the loan. All of a sudden, there is no other mitzvah in the Torah which can guarantee a person such a great loss of money as this. There are other mitzvahs that if you don't do them, okay, you won't make the money. But you'll lose money. But if you here, you're going to lose money. There's a financial loss which is almost guaranteed. And therefore, the Medrash says, a person who's able to do this, he is called, stand by this challenge. He's called strong. Mighty strong. The morale of Fragrab Yudal a well known Kabbalist and commentator on the Torah, explains this and says There are many other mitzvahs where the God gives us a commandment. Where there's a loss of money, for example, charity. I worked hard for the money, and I got to give it to somebody else. Even tithing from your fruit, tithing from your earnings. I earn the money, I'm giving 10% to the poor person, to whatever it may be. But what's the difference? It's not yours. What's the difference about this mitzvah about any other one? By when I'm giving duck, I'm giving charity, at least somebody's getting from it. Over here when it comes to the Shemitah, when it comes to the sabbatical year, it's a whole year of loss of money and nobody's getting the money. It's not like I'm giving it to somebody. I'm just living the land, leading, letting it be. And because of this it's going to be more difficult the following year and it's going to be a loss of money. So the question over here gets even stronger. What purpose can the Torah have in such a mitzvah? To not work with your field. To remove yourself completely from the field for an entire year. And what's the purpose? If the Torah would tell me, work on the field. Take the money that you worked on it and give it to the poor. I would understand. Okay, fine. You want me to take all the money and give it to the poor people. But at least work with your field. Over here the Torah is telling me, don't even make anything. Don't even give anything. The poor people want, they can come and take the fruit that's there. But the Torah over here is telling me something even further. Leave your field alone, don't touch it. Don't work with it, let it be, stay putrid, let it just stay nothing, dormant. You're going to lose. What's going to gain? What's the point of it? Today, most halachic authorities believe that the mitzvah of Shemitah is not a biblical obligation as it was in the time of temple times. We do it to remember what was done, and therefore it's only a rabbinic ordinance. And therefore today, being that it's only a rabbinic commandment, there are leniencies that exist today in the land of Israel. For example, uh, there's one leniency, the same when we sell our chametz on Passover to the non-Jew. So to today, a Jewish person can sell his field to a non-Jew. He can work on the field, but it's not his field. It's a non-Jew's field, and he gets paid as a worker to work on the field. Another method that they do today is that the Bezdin, the rabbinical court buys the field. They own the field and they pay the farmers to work on the field, but all the fruit and the produce is, goes into a communal fund so it doesn't belong to the farmer and the farmer is only able to make a profit off it. Uh, that's a way of uh, allowing. Another method as well as we know about loans, there's Hillel made something called a pruzbul. A pruzbul is an agreement where all loans, again, go to the best and then, therefore the person can still collect this loan after the seventh year as well. So today because the mitzvah of Shemitah technically is only a rabbinic commandment we have these what we want to call loopholes or ways to be able to avoid it. But from a biblical obligation from a biblical obligation the question still remains. Another question which is one of the things that Shemitah is that it only applies in the land of Israel. Now, if the Torah was so concerned that we should remove ourselves from our occupation for a year time, why is it only in Eretz Yisrael? It should be everywhere. Every Jew wherever every year should take one year and not work. No matter what industry you're in, why is it only in the Eretz Yisrael and why is it only in agriculture? Not only that, even more so, the Torah correlates the concept of observing the sabbatical year with the Jewish people living in the land of Israel. That means the Torah says, if you don't, it's brought in Ethics of Our Fathers, chapter five. Now, one of the reasons why the Jewish people are exiled from the land of Israel is because they haven't observed the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year. In you, if you look in next week's Torah reading, when we read about the rebuke that's mentioned, the teichacha, about the many different uh, curses that are given to the Jewish people, or uh, terrible things that may come upon the Jewish people. One of them is the exile. And the exile comes because of the not observance of the Shemitah year, that if you don't follow the sabbatical year, the, uh, the land will kick you out. In fact, the commentary Rashi explains, and says, if you look, how many years were the Jews exiled in Bavil, and Babylonian exile between the first and second temple? was well, 70 years. How many years did the Jewish people not observe Shemitah? because he gives a calculation of when they came into the land of Israel from when the ten tribes were exiled. How many years did they not observe Shemitah? There were 70 Shemitahs, 70 different sabbatical years from the period of when they came into the land of Israel until the destruction of the first temple. And you see, per Shemitah, that's how many years they were exiled. So we see a direct correlation of, not obs- of lack of observance of the sabbatical year which caused the Jewish people to be exiled out of the land of Israel. So we see something very clearly here. That there is an absolute responsibility of a Jew that lives in the land of Israel to observe the sabbatical year. Observing the sabbatical year is not only an incentive, but is a reason for the Jewish people to stay in the land of Israel. And what does it mean to observe the sabbatical year? Is total um, disconnect from the field that you're working with. And the question is why? And what it, why isn't it also practiced outside the land of Israel? And there are many different ways of approaching the subject, but of course we always look at it from the Hasidic perspective and see what the root of this mitzvah is and what this mitzvah means to us in a contemporary and practical application, even us who are not farmers, not dealing with agriculture, how does this apply in our lives? There's an interesting tidbit or anecdote from the Hassan Sofer of Sofer, Sofer, who lived in the uh, 1800s, in the city of Budapest in Hungary, who said an interesting thing about when it comes to the uh, sabbatical year. He said the mitzvah of the sabbatical year has a very unique thing about it. It's one of the proofs that God's Torah is divine. You know, many people say, "Eh, how do I know the Torah is divine? Who said that maybe there was some guy sitting on top of a mountain and made this beautiful novel, how there was a tree of knowledge and they went into the land of Egypt and they gave them all these laws. Where do you know that the Torah is divine? Maybe Moses made it up. Maybe somebody made up about Moses. What are the proofs that the Torah is divine? The Chassam Sofer says, Rabbi Moshe Sofer says, if any guy in his right mind were to make a book of laws and say, you know what? One year while you're working with the ground, don't touch it. And guess what? I promise you there's going to be a blessing for three years. Who in their right mind can promise such a thing? Only God. Who in their right mind, if you would want to attract people, or you would want people to study a book, you wouldn't say, don't work, tell them work. Make money, work hard. You wouldn't say, don't work with the land for so one year and don't do anything with it. Rationally, there's no make sense of it. There's nothing that you can rationalize to say any person in the same mind would come up with such an idea. So this proves to us that the Torah is divine because no human being can promise you that you're going to have produce for three years when you don't work with the land. And therefore he says, If you look in this week's Torah reading, the Torah reading begins and says, the Torah reading says, God spoke to Moses saying, on Mount Sinai, these are the laws to tell the Jewish people and begins with the sabbatical year. So, you know, in English, it says, what does this have to do with the price of cheese in China, right? Or something like that. So when you want to say that, what does one thing have to do with the other? In Hebrew they say, what does Shemitah have to do with Har Sinai? What does the sabbatical year have to do with Mount Sinai? Rashi asks that question. What does the sabbatical year have to do with Mount Sinai? God says, these are the laws that were set at Mount Sinai. Observe the sabbatical year. What does it have to do with Mount Sinai? So the Chassam Sofer says, and says because this proves that all the mitzvahs are divine. Because if the sabbatical year was given at Mount Sinai, who else would give such a law, that means that all mitzvahs are divine, and this is the biggest proof that we can learn from all the other commandments that they were given at Mount Sinai. So we see from over here is why does God believe, begin with this mitzvah? Seemingly because to teach you that this mitzvah is absolutely must be divine, so too all the other mitzvahs are divine. But this in fact intensifies our question even more so why would God give such a commandment which is so opposite the human condition? So opposite practicality. So opposite of what it means to be able to enhance the land of Israel. If I want to make the land better, a land of production, I should work with the land, not let it sit folly. And why only was this mitzvah given in the Eretz Yisrael? And this comes to tell us because the mitzvah of Shemitah, the mitzvah of the sabbatical year, gives us all of a sudden a new perspective, a new way of understanding our way of serving God, understanding what our relationship is with God, and because of that changes our perspective on life, not only in agriculture, but in everything that we come across in life. And over here is the perspective is number one. Number one is to realize that your job that you go to and that you work is not what sustains you. Working harder is not gonna make you another extra penny. While yes, you have to go to work. And while the head tells you I need to work hard and the only way I'm gonna make money to support my family is if I work hard, comes the sabbatical year and flips everything on the side. Comes the sabbatical year and explains to you and says that the work that you have, the occupation that you do is merely a tool to bring God's blessings into you. The same way that the wallet doesn't make you have money or the faucet doesn't bring the water, they're only mediums for you to be able to have the water or for you to be able to put the money in. The same thing is also the same idea the sabbatical year teaches us. That while I need to work, while the farmer goes to his field, and he works and he does have to do it for the six years, he puts in his effort and he works in the field and he has to do everything that he has to do. The, but he has to remember one thing. There's the sabbatical year, everything comes to a stop. What does the sabbatical year tell me? The sabbatical year tells me that the very fact that I will, if you think you're going to work on the sabbatical year, and all of a sudden I'm going to make it, because I'm going to outsmart God, comes God and tells you, you no, know, on the contrary. On the contrary. The sabbatical year comes and tells you as in this week's Torah reading. The Torah reading begins with the mitzvah of the sabbatical year then goes on to the mitzvah about loaning money on interest or being sold as a slave or whatever it may be. Rashi explains because if you don't keep the sabbatical year what's going to happen? You're going to need money then. And not only are going to need money you're going to start taking money on interest and now you are going to have not money to pay so you're going to have to sell yourself out to be able to be a slave. So what is the sabbatical year? That's the beginning of a ripple effect of losing your money. What does it mean to be able to earn money? How are you going to be able to do better? Is if you follow the sabbatical year. That's why you'll find something very unique with the mitzvah of the sabbatical year that no other mitzvah has. Which is, the only time that God puts doubt into somebody's mind is when it comes to the sabbatical year. Doesn't say, observe the Shabbos. You say, oh, how am I going to make money if if I'm observing the Shabbos? God doesn't say that. But when it comes to the sabbatical year, what does the Torah say? Observe the sabbatical year, let the land stay folly. And if you might ask, how am I going to survive? How am I going to have what to eat? You should know God will give you his blessing. Why is God putting doubt on the person's mind? Why do you just have absolute faith that if God told you to do it, it's going to happen? It's because what God is telling the Jewish people, that asking the question is part of the mitzvah. Meaning it's part of the faith in God saying, I'm asking, how am I going to survive? But I know that the blessing is going to come. And therefore I have absolute faith that God will give me what I need. This is part of the mitzvah, that we should ask and know that where the answer is. In 2001, there was the sabbatical year in Israel. And after, uh, and there's a story told about There's many stories that are told about farmers who kept the sabbatical year and saw great blessings come to their pro- produce. But here's a story about a fellow, not a re- religious fellow per se, his name was Chumi Kadosh, who used to had a big orchard of fruit, one of the great, biggest orchard of fruit and under the supervision of Rabbi Landau of Bnei Brak, a very important kosher supervision in Israel, which is accepted in every single type of uh, community. And it was in 2001, it was a Shemitah year, was a sabbatical year. And after Passover, as we know, begins the time when all the trees start blooming and the fruits of the bloom start coming out. F- apples, peaches, nectarines, all these kinds of fruits all start coming out. And at that time, once before the fruits start coming out, one of the things that a farmer has to do is to start pruning the flowers, the fruits, because if a tree has too many fruit on it. And I'm sure if you go out to Lewin's farms, you can see it. A fruit that has too many trees, too much fruit on it, that weighs down the tree, the branches can break and you can ruin the tree. So what does the farmer do? He has to calculate what he needs from each tree. And by pruning some of the fruits, taking off the fruits earlier, it makes the tree stronger and allows the fruit fruit A, to stay on the tree longer. So the fruit become bigger, nicer and better and juicier. So from when the fruits start to blossom, we have to go and cut down all the flowers and all the fruits. The amount of time that one is permitted to do so in the sabbatical year is only until the fruit begins to blossom. That means that when there's still a flower, you can cut it because then it's not fruit because then you're not working with the tree. That's the law. This fellow, Mr. Kadosh, owned acres and acres of field was a big supplier of nectarines and peaches and apples for the whole, you know, Israel. And he went, he have, basically have two, three days to be able to go and get off all those leftover to get, you know, take off the fruit, so you can have a proper fruit. In two, three days was not enough for him to cover his entire property. So he went to Rabbi Landau and he asked Rabbi Landau if he can get an extension, I have to finish the rest of my property. Because there are lenient opinions because there are no fruit yet on it, so maybe you can still do it. Rabbi Landau said, no, our supervision is very strict and therefore you're not gonna be able to take off Whatever you did until now, most I can do with you is sympathize and pray to God that everything works out. He was concerned if he doesn't take off the fruit. You're talking about acres of land, orchards of tree, too much fruit on it. First of all, the fruits fall off when they're too small and they're not ripe yet. You can't sell them. And if they fall off with the branches can break, the trees can break, it can be an absolute havoc and destruction. But this is what the Torah says. He accepted it. It so happened to be that that year, in the month of Iyer, where we're currently in in the first month of spring. Over here, it's common, you know, April showers bring May flowers. But over there in Israel, already in April and May, it's a very, very dry and it's not such a stormy weather. That year, all of a sudden, in the middle of the beginning of May, there was a massive storm. Massive storm, there was, a millimeter, it was, I think, a few millimeters of rain that came down in Tel Aviv. The winds were blowing as nobody can imagine while everybody else was suffering from a storm and everything else, this farmer saw his blessing in disguise. What he couldn't cut off with his hand, you know, from the flowers of the tree, fell off from that storm and all the trees were so healthy that they were so healthy that that year, the fruits that grew on the tree the following year were so big and juicy that while they were harvesting the fruit the following year, he was crying about the produce that he had by following what Torah said. He took the first of his fruit and he brought it to the rabbi as a gift and said, this is because of you. Following God's commandments, following the mitzvah of Shemitah, following what God tells us to do, even though it seems illogical, it seems beyond the scope of comprehension. Why would I let something follow Why? Well, what's the big deal? I'm helping the tree. Is the greatest blessing in our life. The best investment that you can do, that you can make, is following what God tells us. Yes, God tells us you have to make a keili, you have to make a vessel. You have to do your hishtadlos you have to do your effort. You can't just sit back and fold your hands. It's like the story of the guy that says, God, I, how come I haven't won the lotto? And God says, meet me halfway, buy a lotto ticket. We gotta do something on our effort. We have to make the vessel. But we cannot believe that the vessel is what brings us the blessing. The vessel is only a medium for us to receive the blessing. The blessing itself comes from God. The Chinuch explains this as follows He says that God told us that on the sabbatical year we should be able to make everything we own and just give, make it, hefker, make it for everybody. So they realize that we should understand and appreciate that it is not our impetus, it is not our power, it is not our strength that makes things come. It is only because of the blessing of God. With this, we can now understand something else very unique. We all make the blessing after we eat bread. There's the blessing called akel, the grace after meals, thanking God for the food that he gave us. You know who made that blessing? Moses. Moses made that blessing for the Jewish people in the time of the desert, when the manna came down from heaven. And he said they have to thank God for the manna that they had. And the question that people ask is, how can I make the same blessing that the Jews made on manna. Mana came down from heaven, the Jews just sat there collecting it. We have to go out, it has to grind the wheat, you have to make it into flour, you have to let the dough rise, you have to make it into bread. There's a whole process. I'm the one that put the effort in. But what are, the, what are the sages telling us? On the contrary, nothing changed. The same way the Jewish people in the desert, the manna was from heaven, so too, what you're eating, the bread that you have, is also from heaven. Ah, over here you had some person intervene. Also for their death intervene. Like the Talmud tells us, in the time of the manna, the righteous people had to take it from their front door. The average person had to go and block and get it. And the evil people they had to grind it and make it like we have today in the kernels and wheat. The question is, if there were righteous people, why couldn't God just put it on their table? Why did they have to go to the front door and take it? Because God wants human intervention. God wants us to be involved. But the bottom line is, he's telling you, get involved. But realize, it's not your involvement that's making it happen. God's making it happen. It's not your involvement. Every single one of us recognizes that we are only partners in making it happen. We have to realize, yes, the bread comes from heaven. I have to work on it. I have something that I have to do. Every single thing that I have, every single part of my objective in this world is to be part of the blessing of God, but don't get in the way of it. We are that vessel, that conduit to bring the blessing to our table. Everything in this world is by, Ashkech, protest, by divine providence. And the very fact that God puts us in certain places is also by divine providence. This year, this week on Thursday is going to be Lag Bomer. And while Lag Bomer we celebrate the great festival of the passing of Rabbi Shimon Mar Yachai and the, when the Jewish and the students of Rabbi Akiva stop dying, this year it has a greater significance in a way because it is also the anniversary, the yard site of a tragic event that happened last year when 50 holy Jews lost their lives in Miron when Ram Shimon Bar Yochai. And just an interesting story there was a fellow uh, by the name of Chaim Gans, he's a scribe in the land of Israel, in Eretz Yisrael. And after the event that Black Bomber took, he, took the, the Jewish people by shock like that he decided he wants to do something in memory of those people so he himself lost his daughter at a very young age five years old and therefore he decided after like Bomer, he was go visit all the different homes of the people that lost their loved ones to be able to talk to them console them coach them and help them he walked into one house in jerusalem actually not jerusalem modin which is right outside jerusalem modin is a place where you know hanukkah story happened And over there, there was a family that lost their son, Menachem Osher Zegbach. He was 24 years old. He had a child of one and a half years old. And the family was, you know, mourning the loss. He walked into the house, and as he walks into the house, he sees on the table a bunch of benchers, you know, benchers, the booklets of the grace after meal. And on it, it said, the will and testament of Menachem Osher Zegbach they asked him, what's this all about? So he says, this fellow that, was killed, that died in Iran, his, he was very careful that no matter where he went and what he did to say the grace after meals from a bencher, that he would use a book. He would never say it by heart. And no matter what he did, he would always—he wa- wash on the bread until he knew that when he would bench, he would have a place to say the grace after meals. The Chaim Gans, the Sofer, says, you know what? That's a beautiful tradition in his memory. I want to take on that tradition as well. And that's what he did. A few months later, he's at work with all the scribes and having lunch. He's about to go for lunch. And he's looking. He needs a bencher to bench from. He couldn't find one. And finally he found one. And the only one that he found was one that was written like in the handwriting of a Sefer Torah. Like in a beautiful Sefer Torah script. You know, the font was like the font of the Sefer Torah. And that's what he used. And as he's looking at it, he says, this is beautiful handwriting. But it was a computer handwriting. So he decided, you know what? I want to perfect my uh, writing in the Torah. Let me try to imitate this handwriting, this computer font, to make this type of handwriting. And he started taking this adventure that he found and using that as his template, so to speak, to make his handwriting better and perfect it. He was having a hard time selling his mezuzahs and fillin'. The market was slow, whatever it was. Just that day, somebody came in and said that there's a wealthy Jew in Jerusalem, in Borough Park that wants to write a Torah in memory of the people that were killed in Iran. And he's looking for different handwritings of different sofas. So he submitted his handwriting that he just started working on. The guy in Borough Park, so he says he fell in love with it. He wrote him a contract right there on the spot he had to write a Torah that he did. You see the divine providence. He decided that he's going to help somebody. But in turn, what did that do? Helped him be able to have the channel for him to bring sustenance and have a job for his family. What you see from over here is, God has mysterious ways of working. God wants to give you something, he'll give it to you. You just don't get in the way. Accept the blessing. Make yourself a conduit for the blessing. Create the vessel. But don't think that that vessel is what makes the blessing that vessel just received a blessing. It is for this reason that we know that we talk about people that plant. The the Talmud says in Shabbos, in tractate of Shabbos, that the uh, tractate that talks about planting is called faith, belief. Why is it called belief? Because when you put that seedling in the ground, who says something's going to come from it? How do you know something's going to come from it? How many times do people plant and nothing comes from it? You got to have faith that when you put the seedling in the ground, that it's eventually gonna grow and something's gonna come from it and you'll be able to use it. The same ideas also, the same way when a farmer plants, he believes and he has faith that this is gonna grow and he's gonna have bushels and he's gonna have wheat, he's gonna have fruit and it's gonna grow. The same ideas also, we have to know that every single one of us is given with a task in this world and whatever job we have, that that job is just a medium, but the absolute blessing, the absolute Uh, Where does it come from? It's only from our faith in God that it will actually work out. This also takes us back to our question is why was the mitzvah only given then in the land of Israel? And if you think about it, any government has a capital. Every king builds himself a palace, not in every single shtetl that he has, but in one place, that's where they have their palace, that's where they have their army, that's where they have the changing of the guards, that's where they show off their kingdom. And people here, you know what it's like in the palace, and from there people have the awesomeness of the king from wherever it may be. The same thing is also. What's God's palace? God's palace is the land of Israel. Eretz Israel is God's favorite place. So what does God say? Take the land of Israel. Show that the land of Israel see the blessings there. And from there the entire universe would think about it. Think about it. Tell me a nation in the world. That was kicked out of their land. Came back to their land and rebuilt it. The Romans were kicked out of Rome. They ever rebuilt back Rome again. It's not Romans now. The Greeks were kicked out of Greece. They Ever made it back there. No. The Egyptians were kicked out of Egypt. Never made it back there. The Jewish people were exiled from the land of Israel once. They came back and they rebuilt. They were exiled from it twice. They came back and rebuilt. Why? Because the land of Israel is the God's gift to the Jewish people. And God says, this is my palace. Look how you're going to care for it. Even more so. Before the Jewish people took ownership and recognizing that the land of Israel is theirs. For 400 years, it was in the hands of the Muslims, the Armenians, the Turks, the London, the British. You went to many places and it was a dump. Nobody wanted it. One of the reasons they gave it away to the Jews because nobody wanted it. What was there? In the 70 years that Israel had, the Jewish people were took ownership of the land of Israel and continued to prosper. It only continues to grow and to prosper and to blossom, like by leaps and bounds. Like in the words of Ben-Gurion once said, He said, if somebody doesn't believe in the miracles, he's not realistic. (laughs) The only way you can explain it is it's a miracle. The fact that we observe the sabbatical year, what is the sabbatical year telling us? Brings us to the height of belief in God and recognizing in miracles and faith. That recognizing that God is the one that's making this all happen. It has nothing to do with the human being. Because there are plenty of human beings who are smarter and greater before us and they weren't successful. And in many other places. You can have two people doing the exact same job. One is successful, one is not. Why? Because one is the blessing and the faith of God. One is not. And this is what the Torah is telling us. When we're doing engaged, what does this mean to us in every single one of us, in every single job that we have? And in every single task that we take upon ourselves, we have to remember that the source of all blessing is the blessing of God, and that's what makes us successful. Your greatest asset is the blessing of God. Your greatest investment is the blessing of God. And therefore, as we've read in the Hayyam just recently, which is that a person can work 100 hours a week He's not going to make one cent more than what God has divinely ordained for this person to accomplish. You need to do your job in making a vessel. You need to do your job in creating, putting in the effort. And God will already do his part in giving us the blessing. We need to make sure to do our part. Look at the difference as an uncle and a a niece. Yosef, when he was in prison, he turned to the Saramashkin, to the butler, and said, speak to Pharaoh and save me. Did it help him? Absolutely not. He stayed there for two years and the Saramashkin, the butler, forgetting to everything that he told. And the contrast, his own niece, many generations later, Esther Amalked Esther, the queen, she had to go in front of the king, Achashverosh. What did she do? She fasted for three days. You would think if she's going in front of Achashverosh, she should get dressed up, she should eat, she should feel healthy and secure. But she recognized, I'm only going in front of Achashverosh because I have gods, so I'm on a mission of God. It's not because of my own strength that all of a sudden I'm gonna persuade him and I'm gonna convince him. It's absolute miraculous that's whatever's going to happen. This is what the Torah is telling us. Don't think, don't start getting convinced that it's your strength, your talent, your quality. Of course, they're all important, but they're only tools to be able to bring God's blessings. They say a story about a fellow He was rushing in his davening Because he had to run to work So when he runs out of the synagogue He's running out of the synagogue A fellow turns to him and says One second How do you know that your sustenance How do you know your job is that way Maybe you're running away from it You're not running towards it Where do we know where it's coming from We have to do what we have to do We have to put our, our best efforts in and God will already give us the blessings, and may God give us the greatest blessing of all, that we should all see success in whatever we do, even more than we can imagine, until the greatest success in seeing the coming of Mashiach.